Sunday in January this year, we're honored that God has sufficiently allowed us to assemble, and what a privilege it is to be able to gather with those of like precious faith in 2 Peter 1, verse 1, and to offer up our worship, our heartfelt praise and adoration unto the God of heaven. I think it would be fair to say that uh, Tucker said something about a bag on his head earlier. I'm hopeful that won't be too sufficient a matter. If so, you can share after services what that may involve, Tucker. But we're glad that all of our visitors are here. We're thankful that all of us have been able to come with health to this day. I suppose there are a few subjects in all the Bible that might be more expansive than would be the grace of God, and yet we're going to attempt over the next few moments to at least bring to our mind some appreciations of it that will whet our appetite for perhaps further study and further consideration of that marvelous and majestic theme. As we come to that this morning, this introductory slide will be rather brief. In fact, it will merely make observation of this. Whether it be some of the songs that we sing, whether it be some of the verses to which we refer, the grace of God is a rather oft-occurring subject. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. The very mention of those words remind us of Psalm 36 in her book. And not only that, other songs that so readily proclaim the greatness of the grace of God. What if we were to be asked, of what is God's grace? To what specifically does it refer? What does it mean for you and me? Those are wonderful questions and certainly deserving of attention. And today, again, at least in a few moments, why don't we see if we can take justice in light of them? And why don't we begin like this? I thought I would take just a few moments and at least do a, a broad consideration of just a few of the verses that highlight the sheer enormity of God's grace. Some of these verses are very well familiar to each of us. And not only are they familiar, they probably have been verses that have been so comforting. We have relied upon them. They have soothed our spirit. They have brought a great deal of restfulness. In Psalm 116, verse number 5, Gracious is the Lord and righteous, and He is known for His mercy. Even the psalmist of the old recognized the sheer wonder connected to God's grace and even there proclaimed it, apparently in such fantastic words. In Nehemiah 9.17, Nehemiah recognized that God's graciousness would lead him to forgive them. You and I shall make application somewhat later in the lesson to that. In 2 Corinthians 9 verse 8, the abundance of God's grace is there stated, we can receive everything in light of it. Not only that greatness proclaimed that way, is it not declared He is the God of all grace? In 1 Peter 5, verse 10, those are just a sampling of some of the passages that might well come to our mind. What then would be a definition? I suspect that many times you and I, as those who obviously are very religious and our faith means a great deal to us, others may have entered into conversation with us, and God's grace may have been a part of that conversation. Maybe they had misunderstandings. Maybe they had questions. Maybe they had other thoughts. And you and I had an opportunity to help them in light of this topic of God's grace. I suppose the most common definition is unmerited favor. To put that slightly differently, God doing for us what we never could have done for ourselves. 
And there's certainly something to be said about that description. In fact, there are many Old Testament passages that seemingly connect rather powerfully to that idea. Joel 2.13, God's people had in fact chosen to live in sin. They had chosen to be rebellious, and yet Joel highlighted the fact, if you will turn back to him, he will do for us what in that previous state we could never have done for ourselves. Amos declared that in somewhat similar words in Amos 5.15. Jonah understood it well in Jonah 4, verses 2 and 3. But at the very least, all of that helps us see that this essence of God's grace, Him being made such that He makes available to us what we could not have made available to ourselves, giving us what we just don't deserve. As you close that particular slide, wouldn't this be the right time to mention eternal life? The promise of eternal life is so wonderfully stated in 1 John 2.25. This is the promise which He, which he hath promised us, even everlasting life. You and I who are woeful sinners, those who on occasion have done what we ought not to have done and we have failed to do what we should, Brother Dennis just led us in prayer connected to those ideas. All have sinned to come short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23 and the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23 so loudly shouts to us. We appear to have been doomed. And yet, God dipped down in the marvelous majesty of His grace and made available to us an opportunity to not suffer that kind of a fate. And so as you close that slide, isn't it true that the offering of the Son of God, the coming of the Christ... The blessing is connected to what not only he lived in life, but the death that he died, the shedding of his blood. We so beautifully are reminded in the Hebrew letter especially about how that when the Lord died, he shed blood one time for sins forever. Though that blood may literally have been shed about 2,000 years ago at this point, it still is as powerful it still has the great sense of wonder connected with it that it can accomplish that for which God intended it. It's no wonder then that that grace still so beautifully is shown to you and to me. In Hebrews 2 verse number 9, By the grace of God He tasted death for every man. Did you note the word? By the grace of God He did that. By the grace of God He, the Christ, tasted death for every man. I should have died for my sin. That would have been the appropriate thing. But God's grace had a different story to tell. You should have died for your sin, but the grace of God had a different outcome in mind. Isn't that beautiful? Breathtaking. In Romans chapter number 3, right after some of those passages we've already noted, could I invite you to consider... Verse number, 23, verse number 24. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Being justified freely. Might you and I never forget the adverb freely. We didn't deserve it. And yet, God made offer of it, and the richness of it provides our redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Other passages you'll notice on that slide also point our attention to somewhat similar things to it. But I would use this as an opportunity. 
to discuss another attribute, another aspect of the grace of God. This attribute is one that in many ways is a scene for much discussion. We will try to be brief, but could I ask you this? The common prevailing view in the world around us with respect to the grace of God goes something like this. That God is loving, and no matter what you do, He will make an extension to you of the opportunity for salvation. And it's almost as if His grace is basically Him looking the other way. Oh, you may have done wrong, but oh, come that great day, He's just going to look away and overlook it. It's almost as though God's grace is like paint. You and I can take a wall that's tarnished and marred and perhaps quite interestingly damaged, and we can paint over it and it looks fine. Is that God's grace? That it takes the flaws and the failures and the sins of your life and mine and just paints over it? Doesn't really change them. It just paints over them. Is that a view of God's grace? Is that biblically accurate? Is it consistent with the Word of God? It is there that much of the religious world chooses to camp. Seeing God's grace basically in that light. That the flaws, the shortcomings, the failures and sins, ultimately God's just going to overlook it. And that's what His grace is all about. I cannot say strongly enough that that is not biblical grace. It is not. We're going to look at several verses that point out to us what that grace is. But it's not that. In fact, you may notice a warning that may well start that discussion in Jude verse number 4. In the second to the last book in the entirety of the Bible, we read a rather notable warning that includes an aspect and a consideration of grace. And that warning reads like this. There are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained of this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness. You see, there are those who can make use of a topic like the grace of God and twist it and turn it into what it never was. There the word is lasciviousness. You take what is God's grace and use it to somehow defend a sinful style of life. You can't do it. Jude wrote, that's ungodly. That's not God's grace. Some men may think that it is. But not only is it not now, it never was. That kind of a warning only whets our appetite. For what does the Word of God remind us about the essence of God's grace? the power connected to it, and what it can well mean in your life and in mine. I mentioned a moment ago that, again, some look upon the grace of God as merely His overlooking sin. Maybe a few verses could help us appreciate that. Look at Numbers 32, 23, even as far back in the Old Testament. Be sure your sin will find you out. Does that sound like God will overlook it? Does it sound like God will simply ignore it? You and I might turn the page to Matthew 12, 31. What about those guilty of the unpardonable sin? Does that sound like God will overlook it? Jesus rather straightforwardly taught that those guilty of it will never be saved. You and I have often given thought to understanding what that means, and we understand that it means those who won't come to the Lord. 
The unpardonable sin is simply any sin that a person won't repent of. God won't forgive it if you won't repent of it. We read that again in 1 John, the fifth chapter. But may we also point this out in Matthew 7, verses 21 and following. As Jesus gave this vivid representation of the judgment, He pointed out that not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. For many shall say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. Then will I profess unto them, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. Here were those who may well have built upon a foundation they thought was the grace of God. And yet the fact was that they never had been known by Him. That's what the Lord said. Never. Maybe the point could be noted then, is the grace of God a fantastic subject? Surely it is. Has there been misunderstanding? Absolutely. But it isn't because of the Bible. The Bible has so much to share with us about the grace of God. Transition with me near the bottom of that slide. Upon that slide then, let's notice a few facts detailed for you and me about the grace of God. First, it's a gift. Ephesians, the second chapter, points that out in such majestic beauty. When it points out you're saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. As you revisit that doublet of passages with me, we notice you are saved how? By the grace of God. Nobody will be saved without God's grace. But one more time, that's not nearly the same as saying He's just going to welcome everybody into heaven regardless of what they've done and how they've lived. You're saved by the grace of God, and that not of yourselves. It's not you and me. It, pronoun it, referring to grace, is of course of God. But not only should it be noted that it's a gift, that's only a reminder of some of the other things stated in the New Testament about it. In 2 Corinthians 8, 1, God bestows it. Well, that's easy enough to note. You bestow a gift. You know, might also notice Paul made that same statement in 1 Corinthians 15, 10 when he pointed out in such richness that he, by the grace of God, had been able to enjoy the blessings that he then enjoyed. Because again, it was something bestowed. But could we all take an opportunity to note this? Gifts have to be received. Someone, perhaps out of the kindness of their heart, may offer to you and me a gift, but it doesn't have to be received. Are we surprised then that in 2 Corinthians 6, 1, God's grace has to be received? It isn't just heaped on people regardless whether they want it or not. You have to want it. You have to receive it. No wonder Paul then so beautifully told the Corinthians, make sure you don't receive God's grace in vain. You and I have to take note of our reception of the wonder of that offering. One final thought on that page is this one. In Colossians 1, verse 6, God's grace must be known in order for the fruits which God respects to in fact come forth. So, so far, grace is a gift. It must be received. And it is only by way of it 
that you and I or anyone can bring forth that fruit unto God that would be desired by Him. So how do you get God's grace? You and I could, in fact, spend multiplied days listening to supposed scholars talk about how you receive the grace and what's involved in it. God's Word doesn't make it that complicated. Romans 5 verse 2 says we have access to God's grace by faith. And that's pretty simple. Access to God's grace by faith. You'll immediately notice then that means it's not automatic. God won't heap the blessings of His grace upon people who have not exhibited faith to receive it. Grace is not, again, like painting a wall. I understand well that many in our world think that everybody at some point is just going to receive it and just going to be joyously welcomed into heaven. And there's a universalism connected to it. But it's just that's so distant from the teaching of the Word of God. The wonderful grace, the gift connected to it must be received. We certainly will have to give attention to that shortly. The last part of that slide before you may well be one of the most eye-opening considerations. I know in some ways it was for me. When I first began to appreciate passages like those three, if God's grace is as the world seems to perceive it, that greatness that is extended to man, and we all know how great God is, then how could these next three verses possibly be the case? Galatians 2 verse 21, I do not frustrate the grace of God. Question, can you frustrate the grace of God? Can you turn the grace of God on its head and make it what God never intended it to be? Paul said you can. I do not frustrate the grace of God. May you and I never forget, though He is far more powerful than we, by our choices, we can bring about what He never desired what He never intended, frustrating the grace of God. Look at Hebrews 12, verse 15. There we find another inspired writer who pointed out that God's grace can fail. What think ye of that? God's greatness, His infinite majesty, the almightiness of His character, and yet His grace can fail? You won't hear many sermons about that from the religious world at large, I suspect. Because again, grace isn't perceived this way. But God's grace can fail. Look at the third one. In Jude verse 4, we just noted a moment ago, God's grace can be perverted. Men again can twist it and turn it and pervert it in such a way that it was far from what God intended it to be. May I ask you, how can grace possess all these attributes? If God is as you and I know that He is, how can His grace fail? How can it be perverted? How can it be these descriptions you and I just noted to be frustrated? Let's turn the slide and see. Can I point out that the grace of God, as lofty a subject as it is, a subject as filled with grandeur as it is, there is a practicality to it that is something for which we should be so thankful you don't have to be an Aristotelian scholar to understand the teaching of God's grace. 
You don't have to be a person with a half a dozen PhDs in Biblical Hebrew and Greek to understand it. God has presented it in language that you, each of us can not only appreciate, but even a child can understand the sense in it. Let's look at a few of these. Let's start as far back as Genesis chapter 6. In Genesis chapter 6, you and I recall that the creation of the world had only been about 1,600 years earlier. The earth was still fairly young, you see. It's still rather young, by the way. And yet in light of that, we notice that mankind had become evil, so much so that the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, Genesis 6 verse 5. And yet, verse 8 says, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. There's our word. What did Noah find? What was it that was available to him? It says he found grace. I find it interesting. That's the first time in all the Bible the word occurs. The first time. In Genesis 6 verse 8. And it's the topic before us this morning. So what did God's grace mean then? What was involved in it? Did it mean that Noah and his family were saved regardless of what they did or did not do? Did it mean that they, by some means, were the recipients of the offering of God's salvation despite anything to the contrary? Oh, of course, all of us know differently than that. We notice, beginning in verse 12 of that chapter, that God's grace involved this. God delivered to Noah a system of instruction. Noah, you build an ark. Here's the dimensions I want you to make of it. Here's the wood I want you to make of it. Here's the number of stories. Here's what I want you to put on board. Grace involved a system of instruction to which Noah was expected to be faithful, to which he was expected to be obedient. Are we not told in Genesis 6.22, Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. There's the embodiment of what could be appreciated connected to grace on this occasion. Hebrews 11 verse 7, in light of the work of Noah, will say that by faith... Notice earlier we learned that grace is accessed through faith. By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, constructed an ark to the saving of his house. You notice there was a powerful connection between grace and faith. Grace made the system of instruction available to Noah. Noah responded to it in faith by doing it. And in that way, he was the recipient of the blessings promised in connection to the grace. Noah was promised deliverance, but it only came as he fulfilled the building of the ark and the obedience to God's instructions, grace and faith. Some have described it this way, that grace is God's part in the equation descriptive of the salvation of man. Faith is man's part in the equation for the description of the salvation of man. But you can already begin to see that the extension of God's grace was not an automatic salvation for Noah despite anything that he might or might not have done. He was expected and did follow through in obedience and in that way he received the promise of salvation and deliverance from the terrible waters of the flood. That opening observation then about the grace of God has certainly been an interesting one, hasn't it? What about the next one? You may have noted this was the lesson text. 
read earlier in our service today. Could I direct your attention to Titus chapter 2? As Paul directed that little epistle to Titus, he described in chapter number 2 things that are very pertinent for our consideration today. Probably verse number 11 is one of the most familiar of the verses in the book. Let's begin there. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. And if I stop at that point, some would say, well, preacher, there it is. It says God's grace has appeared to everybody, regardless what they've done or not done. There it is. Problem is, that's not the end of the sentence. It reads onward like this. Teaching us. Might we all take note? Grace does something. It teaches. Again, grace is a system of instruction that makes available blessings and opportunities conditioned upon the obedience to that system of instruction that's called grace. Let's finish the verse then. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. What a beautiful passage. So the grace of God teaches you and me something. What does it teach? I've got to deny ungodliness, worldly lusts. These things, again, that men may approve. These things that perhaps the issues of the human frame might desire. They have to be denied. Set them aside. Can't pursue that. That verse then says this. In addition to not pursuing those things, we've got to live soberly, righteously, and godly. Now you'll notice again, this doesn't sound like the typical description of grace that the religious world might present. Grace teaches us something, and we are anticipated by the nature of God's deliverance to be obedient to it, to live soberly. That means with sound judgment and wisdom connected to what's been revealed in that system, we live righteously connected to what's right by the judgment of God. And finally, he says, we live also in that way that's described as godly, what he approves in every way. So, so far, this issue of God's grace, it is a beautifully connected thing, that system whereby God has made available those things that are expected and demanded in order to receive the benefits and blessings of the promises Close that slide with me. That system of instruction highlighted in this passage before us. It says, in this present world. Notice again, we all agree what the Lord did 2,000 years ago roughly, but Paul says in this present world, there are expectations on the part of God for the way that we live, for the conduct that we have, for our behavior. May it always be sober, and righteous and godly. This next slide will close our lesson before we get to our conclusion page and do so like this. We learn something about where the gospel is found. It is the gospel of the grace of God. It is the gospel that presents the grace of God. We're not going to find the attributes and details of God's grace in the Wall Street Journal. We're not going to find it in the National Geographic. We're not going to find it in other religious documents. We're going to find it in the gospel. 
Is it any wonder that Paul could testify then of the gospel of the grace of God, the good news of it, the consideration of where and how it's presented to us? And now we come to this observation. Paul gives to us in 2 Timothy 1, chapter 2, verse 1, arguably one of the most dramatic truths connected to the grace of God. It's found somewhere. We've already highlighted the gospel, and that's a great truth. But the grace of God is in Christ Jesus. That's how Paul says it, practically verbatim, in 2 Timothy 2, verse 1. The grace of God which is in Christ. To those people who are in Christ, they are the blessed beneficiaries of all the promises and things connected to that grace. But to that person who is not in Christ, they do not have access to that because their faith has not been the key so far to unlock the promises that God has conditioned by virtue of His grace. Are you in Christ today? The Bible delivers but one way to get into Christ, only one. Galatians 3, verses 26 and 27. You're all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus, for as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. To those people, those individuals who have obeyed the gospel, expressing their faith in response to the offer of God's grace, it is they who in that sphere of existence receive the blessings and the benefits that are made available by virtue of the grace of God. And so, to those who are living faithfully, aren't we thankful? Aren't we blessed and privileged to live in that place? And Brother Dennis led us in prayer earlier, being thankful for the blessings connected to what God has showered upon us. But doesn't that paint again that dramatic picture of those who are not in Christ? No matter how well-intentioned otherwise they might be, they're the ones frustrating the grace of God. They're the ones on whom the grace of God will fail. God doesn't want them to be lost. 1 Timothy 2, 4 says God wants all men to be saved, but He lets us make the decision. If I choose to turn my back on the blood of Christ, if I choose to turn my back on the gospel, then I will frustrate the grace of God. God doesn't want me to be lost but there's only one way that I can be saved. And if I ignore that, if I choose to live separate and apart from that, that's what's causing frustration to His will. I hope we each are impressed that God allows us to make that dramatic a decision. God wants us to be saved. The devil wants us to be lost. We get to cast the tie-breaking vote. Which will it be? There might be one or more in this assembly today who perhaps have thought over time about the grace of God and maybe we could be misled by something that men have said about it. But God's grace, again, simply stated is a system of instruction. It teaches us something. May you and I be good learners. May we be those who have a desire to turn our will so that it's consistent with His. May we never in stubbornness or in other kinds of considerations choose to live defiantly to what God has taught. For if we do, God's grace will fail at least on our account. And God's grace will be frustrated on at least our account. And that's tragic. That's catastrophic. 
And on the day of judgment, it'll be eternally fatal. Brother Eddie has chosen a psalm of encouragement. We're going to stand in just a moment and close our lesson that way and offer an invitation so that we may be of assistance to anyone. We would love to do that. If you have never obeyed the gospel, never come to be in Christ so that you too could enjoy the blessings of God's grace, let today be the day. Believe in the Lord, won't you? Repent of your sins, confess His name, and in baptism, He'll add you to the church and write your name into the Lamb's book of life. But if you have begun that way of life and perhaps have stumbled and fallen and begun to live in a habitually sinful way, why don't you come back today to your first love? You see, God's grace, He didn't want it to fail. And surely in our better moments, we don't either. But if you would wish to come back today, won't you confess those errors, make repentance of them, and we would be delighted to pray on your behalf to the God of heaven. If we could be of help at this time, we invite you to come and so strongly encourage you to do that while together we stand and while we sing.